Hello, and welcome to the Bright Club Southampton podcast, episode 10. Wow, made it all the way to 10. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I am your host, Dave Christensen. Uh, it's uh, it's nice to have you with me here. Ooh, that was a fun noise if you can hear that. Uh, I'll check it back and maybe edit myself commenting on that out. So, um, if you don't know what we're doing here, um, if you don't know why you're listening, uh, I'll, I'll tell you why, um, because uh, this is going to be fun. Uh, so we uh, we run a comedy night um, every few months or so, uh, that's Bright Club, um, so that's a comedy night where uh, we get kind of researchers and academics and people with interests in kind of academic subjects to get up and tell us some jokes, make us laugh about those things. Uh, and then... Um, we make a podcast as well, which is what you're listening to. Thank you. Uh, and the podcast is all about us getting to know those researchers or academics or whoever they are, the performers. Get to know them a little bit better, have a chat, find out about how they ended up doing what they're doing, um, maybe find out a little bit more about their research. Um, and, uh, yeah, just have a bit of a chat with them. So um, so that's what you're listening to. And, uh, and in this particular episode... We have uh, Dr. Nick Percival, uh, who works at Solent University. Um, so she's our first Solent person on the podcast, which is great. Uh, so she um, isn't an academic anymore, but uh, in the past she was a historian. And um, in particular, she studied the Vikings, which is cool. Um, I don't want to preempt too much of what she talked about. Um, although one thing I will say is... I don't know that Nick knows that I'm half Norwegian, um, because I was there during the recording, and she is very complimentary about Norwegians, in a way that if she knew that I was half Norwegian, would almost be weird. Um, so thanks, Nick, uh, because Norwegians are great, I do agree about that. Um, anyway, I'm not going to waste any more of your time, uh, let's get on with the show. So, um, Nick, uh, I'm led to believe that um, you are uh, you uh, are not a researcher currently, but you were at some point in in the past, dim and distant past. Yes, yes. Yeah, so you claim to be a medieval historian. Is this a particularly cruel and basic and uh, brutal form of history, or is it? Hey? Um, no more than any other period of history, oh, okay, to be yeah. honest. Though every every period of history appears to come up with its own perfect version of complete and utter awfulness. Yeah. So there's no there's the yeah they you think medieval. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that towards the end of medieval period, they kind of phased out torture on the basis that it gave them imperfect information. So <laughs> not out of you know proper you know sensible feelings of you know this yeah. is terrible and we shouldn't do this to people but it was more yeah. practical this doesn't work mm. so um yeah george w yeah. really <laughs> ought to read his medieval historians because they've already tried it they know it doesn't work this, is it true that um you it, that everybody expected the Spanish Inquisition because they had to give notice before they turned up. They did, yes. <laughs> so yes, you you did expect the Spanish Inquisition, um, and there's a there's a brilliant text actually called Montaigu, which is these records of the Spanish Inquisition about this particular town in France, and there's a whole book 
of these records and it tells you so much about medieval society and who mm. was doing what to mm. whom because everybody got investigated multiple times because yeah. they were looking for heretics but in they found all sorts of things like <laughs> adultery and um, stealing and theft and you know mucking about Spoons. with mucking about with people's boundaries and all sorts so yeah they, yeah. they they're, they're brilliant for records Historians love them. <laughs> oh, I could, it's a bit, I suppose it's a bit like court records always tell you far more than because everyone's under oath. Yeah, yeah. As soon as you see a law in the medieval period, you know that that doesn't mean yeah. people weren't doing it. It means people were doing it a <laughs> <Yes>. lot. <laughs> in fact, the Vikings had very specific laws. Mm. Um, and there were certain things, if you called somebody something, um, and, in, you know, you, you could be killed for it, legally mm. killed for it. And so there was this one chap who, um, according to the sagas, he said to this other guy, ha, your mother was a wolf. <laughs> and um, not only was she a wolf, but I had sex with her and that's how you were born. <laughs> <laughs> and the other guy could legally, could legally um, kill him because not because he said I'd had sex with your mother but because he'd said I'd had sex with your mother and she was a wolf <laughs> <laughs> so and so they have this thing you know that then the element of sort of suggestion of bestiality yeah. right in there see so the Vikings were even better at um um, your mother jokes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They had your mother jokes. Every yeah. kind of joke yeah. you can imagine. But a lot of them you could get killed or lose a limb for, and you had no legal redress. Yeah. So if they had brilliant laws, um, they, they figured out all sorts of um, laws before, you know, things like, you know, if you. If you chop someone's arm off with a sword, you owe them this much. If Blood you um, accidentally chop someone's arm off with a sword, you owe them a slightly yeah. lesser amount. If you carelessly store your sword and some idiot trips over it and hurts themselves, you owe them this much. <laughs> so, so there was a lot of stuff where you actually had to pay up, but there were a few things where everyone said, oh, you crossed a line, mate. There is no redress. It, just prepare, prepare for your end. Okay, so tonight is all about researchers do comedy. Um, and I used to be a historian and researcher in history, but just lately, my job is actually to help other researchers to do their job. I'm what's called a researcher developer. Who knew that they existed? And so in my job, I get to talk to a lot of researchers. And one of the things I always want to know is how they got started. What was the thing that made them want to be researchers? Because let's face it, it's kind of a weird job. And I've discovered that there are some people, it kind of dawns on them gradually that they're going to be a researcher. And other people, they can actually identify that moment in time that made them become a researcher. And some people, so some people, they're just bumbling through life and they are, they're just, I don't know, tinkering around with explosive gases year on, year out, and then suddenly it dawns on them, oh my god, I'm a rocket scientist. <laughs> How did that happen? Is it true that you researched teenage Vikings? I did, yes. Actually, <laughs> I, I, I am guilty of a little bit of a sin here, because... The thing is, you can't get people excited about medieval Scandinavia. <laughs> so you say Viking a lot, even when it is completely inaccurate and has nothing to do with the people that you're ah. talking about. So I was actually researching Icelanders in the 10th to the 12th century. Hmm. Now, by the time they went to Iceland, they weren't Vikings anymore. They were farmers. <laughs> 
<laughs> a few of them were chieftains, um, and they thought of themselves as Vikings, but since they didn't actually go a Viking, mm. they technically weren't Vikings. So actually, I researched teenage medieval Icelanders who were mostly farmers. They were so far from their Viking heritage that when they went into battle with each other, um, they didn't have many resources in Iceland. It didn't take much to be quite rich in Iceland. Mm. And even the richest chieftains, when they went into battle, there'd be some sword play and they'd be throwing spears, but they didn't actually have a lot. So some of the people who went into battle were reduced to just throwing stones at each other. Yes. <laughs> so it's, not, it's not as as amazing as it sounds when you say the word Viking. It's yeah. sort of, that's not how you imagine them going into fight with each other. It's just like, eh, throw a stone. If your mum jokes could be so deadly in the medieval world, that really must have made... Uh, the teenage years somewhat more difficult <laughs> if my school days were anything to go by well actually the the, the thing I was looking at was the was the father-son relationship ah. so I was doing a comparison with Normans ah. and the father-son relationship there massively tenuous link in order to mm. justify the uh, comparison which is that the um, William the Conqueror and his his descent his um, family claimed to be descended from Vikings several hundred years in the past probably but they were totally and utterly Frank Frankish by the time mm. they actually invaded England um, but they've traded on this heritage of Vikingness in order to scare people into doing what they wanted ah. to do and so that was my tenuous link of saying I'm comparing two different Viking societies um, and what I was looking at was um, whether or not the father-son relationship which is supposedly extremely contentious and 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 and, you know, sons just really bored waiting for their fathers to die so they can get on with living. And whether or not this was actually replicated in different kinds of societies. So because Icelandic society was so very different to the rest of mm. Europe, I was looking to see if they had different ways of dealing with teenage angst and mm. how they how they got through. And actually, they did. I did find that they had a very different approach and actually had for the most part, with some notable exceptions, much better father son relationships <laughs> in Iceland than they did in, in, in the rest of Europe, yeah. because in the rest of Europe... But again, in the rest of Europe, they had better father-son relationships than you think. It's just the really well-publicised ones are the father and eldest son. Yes. And the eldest son was the one who had to hang around waiting for Dad to die before he could do anything. So, yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, that was usually the one that's the widely reported one. But, yeah, but it, was, it was fun, actually. So I was walking over... Wolston, sorry, Itchen Bridge the other day to Wolston, and as I came up on the Wolston side, I found a bunch of bridge spotters. I'm going to say that again. Bridge spotters. It's a thing, apparently. So what happened was, I cut off the bridge, and I see this group of people staring at the bridge. So I turn around, and I'm like, okay, so what is it, fireworks? Stampeding wildebeest, what, what am I looking at? And so I go up to the group and I'm sort of like, okay, what's going on here? I go up to the guy in charge. I could tell he was in charge because he was festooned in cameras and he was wearing one of those hardcore waxed waterproof coats that only really dedicated people dare to wear in public. <laughs> and I'm like, this is, this is, this is when I discovered there are bridge spotters among us. Now, I'm, I'm struggling with bridge spotting as a pastime, I have to admit. I mean, where is the challenge here? <laughs> it's a bridge. I mean, I can get behind bird spotting. There's an element 
element of skill and knowledge involved, a bit of luck, there's a challenge there. Train spotting, bit harder to get behind. I mean, once you've mastered the timetable, okay. 6.45 to Charing Cross, tick off your life list, less of a challenge. Although, I grant you, only the most dedicated and skilled train spotter is gonna see a southern train these days. I loved your, your um, four words, big, cool, big, hairy barbarians. Yeah. And I was, I was actually kind of uh, wondering, because look, in Britain, it's, there's sort of a constant meme slash running joke that the Scandinavians are better at X than the British, or like the Scandinavian model. I think. They would totally agree with that. Yeah. Whatever X is, they would totally agree. Um, <laughs> but they'd be cool and generous about it at the same time, yeah. which is really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky enough to do my, uh, I did an MPhil in, in Norway mm. um, and spent two and a half years there. And they, they seriously are the nicest people in the universe, mm. which is just mm. even more annoying that they're also incredibly gifted and intelligent people as well. Yeah. <laughs> and they have this amazing society and there's much more equality for women mm. and all of that stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it, and then you come back here and you're just like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm back now. Another thing that you talked about a lot was finding your path, finding one's path through life. So in, in your case, during a scrum in the <laughs> history department of your university. Yeah, uh, um, I'm a great believer in, 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 in creative accident, um, ah. in that I have never had a career plan. <laughs> and it it's probably self-evident in my path through life that there was no plan at all behind it. <laughs> I went to university, but I, 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 when I was nine, I told my family I was going to university. And they were like, oh, fair enough. And at the time, I thought that a university was just this big school in the middle of the country somewhere. And I have to admit, I was 16 before I actually realised it wasn't a big school in the middle of the country <laughs> somewhere. But I just wanted to carry on. Um, and that's pretty much why I carried on. Mm. I had questions that I hadn't answered yet. So there was never a, I'm going to do a PhD and become a lecturer or a researcher. It was never the plan. It was just, I'm doing the PhD because I've still got questions. And then suddenly at the end of it, I was like, oh, they don't let you endlessly do PhDs for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, okay, now I've got to think about things like, if I want to do any more research, I have to bid for funding. And if I want to do that, I need to find out what the government's interested in funding mm -hmm. because they won't give me any money unless they're interested too. Yeah. So I have to find a way to make them interested. And, oh, I also, apparently, this means I'm a teacher. So, um, <laughs> so I started teaching and I did uh, four or five years of teaching and I loved it. If you'd asked me, even halfway through my PhD, I would have said, are you mad? I don't want to be a teacher. But the teaching was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, but I think I enjoyed it so much. Um, and finishing the PhD, I think some people have this, some people don't. I kind of had answered all my questions. Mm -hmm. And then I had to go and find questions that other people were interested in me yeah. answering rather than my mm -hmm. questions. And I just kind of fell a bit out of love with research. So for me, that was, I had to have that sort of, moment where I looked myself in the eye and said you can't be a teacher without being a researcher for the rest of your career because that's pretty much not going to take you beyond a certain point mm. and you know things are changing the TEFs come in there's different value placed on teaching now but this is going back five six seven mm. years so I had that moment of 
what do I want to do? What am I still passionate about? Mm. I'm still passionate about HE. I'm still passionate about mm. other people who really have got that passion left for their mm. research and want to take it further. And so for me, it was just a natural move to go, according to my former academic colleagues, to the dark side and join <laughs> the professional services. And according to the people I arrived at in the professional services, I come from the dark side. <laughs> so I was like, fair enough. So, um, but I, yeah, so I now I support other people to um, pursue their research and do scary things like the ref and so forth. <laughs> oh, right, yes. So, which actually one of the first things, because when I was a, an early te- uh, early career researcher and teacher. Mm. I, I was in the history department at um, Exeter University, mm. and people were talking about the RAE, which is the early precursor to REF, which you won't know because you're far younger than I am. But they, it was called the RAE before it was called the REF. But I, you know, you come out of your PhD, you've been in your PhD hole for years, mm. and you emerge out onto the, you know, into the world, happens. and people start talking in this jargon you 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 haven't paid attention to this stuff and so there was a scandal in the news something to do with BAE systems um, at the time and for about six months in my first job at Exeter I couldn't understand why the history department was so concerned about aeroplanes I was just like what's going on and then finally somebody very gently after I'd really embarrassed myself by talking about aeroplanes for quite a while told me no it's not BAE it's RAE it's to do with research I'm like oh <laughs> so, so I really feel for early stage researchers who've come out of their PhD and you know what's next what do you do next mm. and so I just want to share with them and give them a chance to you know make that leap without making a complete tit of themselves the way I <laughs> so I'm sitting in a lecture, a bunch of medieval historians, we're all sitting in a lecture, and the lecturer says, hello first year undergraduates, today's the day, today's the day that you have to sign up for your preferred module next term. If you don't sign up today, you just get randomly assigned. Shockwave through the entire lecture theatre, because quite naturally, Nobody has signed up yet for their preferred module for next term. So what happened next is completely inevitable. End of the lecture, 100 medieval historians running across town to get to the medieval history department because they want to sign up for their favourite course. We go past the French department, we leave language students twirling in our wake. (laughs) There are random pedestrians climbing lampposts to get away from us. We're overwhelming the street. We get to the medieval history department and it's, it's chaos. I mean, I'm never going to forget this scene. It got brutal pretty fast. One thing sticks in my memory. A mature student, blue rinse, sensible shoes, excessive tweed. And never has the word to handbag, fully realised. This woman had a combat handbag. This thing had sharp edges. And she's handbagging people. Because she wants crusader castles and no one is going to get in there. So even you kind of gone in opposite directions, you didn't want to be a history teacher and ended up as one. Um, that, yeah, then left the field. I originally wanted to be a history teacher, then realised I couldn't write. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's one of the biggest problems I had in preparing for Bright Club, 
was as most people who do humanities have this problem is stopping writing oh. <laughs> so I had real trouble and Nick and Dave just kept saying cut it cut it cut it some more now cut it again <laughs> and I, was like, I can't cut anymore but I yeah um, that's never been a problem I think historians are just born to waffle and, <laughs> and, and I did actually one of my very first pe- pieces of um, feedback mm. when I was an undergraduate mm. was my um my lecturer said, you know, it's, I, I love your essay, you have a beautiful writing style. It would be nice, and you could improve as a historian, if you interrupted your lovely prose with some facts. <laughs> 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 and I took that note, and I worked on that, and I hope that I improved over the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So talking about sort of life path, what was it that led you to do Bright Club? Um... I, I, actually, that was, I organise a conference mm. or, um, each year at, at mm. Solent, and uh, I got in touch with Rosie, who also organised a conference mm. at Solent, although now I've, I've pinched her and she's on my team, yay! <laughs> um, but she said, oh, I've heard about these people who do Bright Club, that would be a great thing to come along and have people talk at the conference about how to make research fun and how mm. to, you know, have a, play around with it and have fun with it and have a laugh. And so we invited Nick and Dave along to the conferences. Um, and somehow, and I'm not quite sure how this happened, but Jess and Nick and Dave invited us along to a Bright Club committee meeting. And by the end of the meeting, we'd both volunteered to be part of it. And I'm still confused <laughs> as to how that happened, but I'm glad it did. Um, yeah, enjoy. we enjoy it. So, yeah. Um, I actually, I've been talking to, I was at a, a thing up in London recently for, for my job mm. and I started talking to people about Bright Club and finding out who's got a Bright Club and who hasn't and a lot of people have heard about Bright Club so I was sort of selling it and going, you need to have one in Loughborough. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, Bright Club will take over the universe. Yes. I'm determined on it. <laughs> and then another fight breaks out over Abelard and Eloise. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Abelard and Eloise. Probably not. <laughs> so, Abelard and Eloise. Eloise, her dad's a merchant, and he's pretty enlightened for the medieval period. He wants his daughter to have an education. So he goes to the local monastery, and he employs the monk, Abelard, to be her tutor. So they enter into a period of intense study, or at least that's what they told her dad. But they did get pretty intense, and Eloise got pregnant. So, student-tutor relationships. I mean, that presents ethical issues today. It's no different in the medieval period. Well, except for one thing. The medieval misconduct board did not mess around. (laughs) Eloise is exiled to a nunnery. Abelard is castrated. Uh, you talked at one of your sort of throwaway gags was about sort of this was in the days when students only had one pair of shoes. And this is actually something I'm quite interested in because like um, sort of, there's always talk about sort of economics of studying as it were, student loans always in the news. Yeah. Has there, in your experience, has there been such a marked difference in sort of the quality of life or sort of level of affluence of 
students? I don't know. I mean, I'd have to say because I'm not currently a student, so mm. I don't know exactly how mm. students are living. I, I imagine probably not much better than, <laughs> than I did. Mm. I mean, okay, um, in my day, it was not considered unusual if you went into a hall of residence that even if you weren't sharing a room, you were sharing a bathroom with at least eight other mm. people. So I don't know if halls of residence still do that, but certainly I did. And my, my bed was a little camp bed, <laughs> and there was um, a sink in the room. And because I went to, to my undergraduate degree in Scotland, um, it was great because in the winter you could put your milk on the windowsill. So we didn't have fridges, but uh. we could still, <laughs> until you got to around about April, you had a good chance of keeping your milk good for a couple of days on the windowsill. So, so that's how we used to. Um, but I think it's, it's, I don't know that it's that, that students have the same issues that we had then. I think they have different issues because back then, everything was in books and you went to the library and you either made notes or you 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 photocopied and took them home you didn't have access to everything on the internet mm. but because of that i think you know when i had to write an essay as an undergraduate or even as a postgraduate you know it was a case of physically finding what was available and what was available wasn't published at such breadth i mean these mm. days everything multiplies so fast and everything's global get it your heads around when you know to stop reading i don't know how kids these days stop reading because (laughs) at least when you'd run out of what was available at your library and on interlibrary loan you were just like okay now i need to write something Mm. but um these days the expectation is you can find everything everywhere so how do you know when to stop and Mm. actually start writing or start producing your results so it's it's an interesting one. I think it's a different. Pro- I think today you have different problems to the problems we had. Mm. We couldn't do stuff at the speed people can do now. It took mm. a hell of a lot longer just to to to, to assimilate all the information because mm. you don't, you didn't have anything like today. You can you can search massive databases of archived documents for keywords and they're just found for you. Back in my day, you had to read every single one of those documents in order to be able to find the thing you were looking for. So stuff took a lot more time back then. But at the same time, by the same token, I think you weren't racking up as big a debt while you took the time to get there. (laughs) Nowadays, um, that is a a massive issue because I was... I was in the very first vanguard of students who got loans. Mm. So, um, and then it was a mix of a grant and a loan. Mm. So the sad truth is I'm still paying off my student loan. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that part where they said that graduate salaries would be so wonderful that Mm. you would be able to pay off your loan within the first few years, that's going back nearly 20 years now. <laughs> I, I never actually earned enough to pay it back until very recently, um, when I left academia. <laughs> so, ha, congratulations, guys. You've set out on a really great career path. <laughs> I'm not really that keen on Abelard and Eloise, if I'm honest. I have a problem with them. It's mainly to do with what they did to their son. I mean, apart from the fact that the poor kid's going to be bullied at school because of his parents' really well-known affair, but they decided to give him the worst name in the history of bad names for children. They called him Astrolabe. Know what an astrolabe is? You see, all I know is it's some kind of 
medieval instrument for measuring something scientific, and frankly, I heard the word scientific and my brain switched off. <laughs> but I'm just thinking, what would it be like if all researchers decided to call their kids after the things they work with in the lab? I mean, here come the twins, microscope and telescope, wow, for God's sake. Here's little electron spectrometer Jones. <laughs> or what about poor, poor little speculum Smith? <laughs> Likely uh, veering off on a tangent. Hopefully it's more please of a do, segue Please than do, because I've <laughs> talked too much about research. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You mentioned in your talk about names and names. Uh, firstly, I'd like to say that Percival is a wonderful name <laughs> for a, a historian of the Middle Ages. <laughs> I know, it's brilliant, isn't it? Round table night, yay. We're actually seated around a round table at the moment. We totally are. <laughs> I have found my spiritual home. <laughs> Yeah, they, they, yeah, they got the round table. They say they got the round table in Winchester. I think we got it here. I think we have. Yeah, yeah. Yes, in Solent, we'll be very pleased to claim that. Yeah, but um, speaking of names, you mentioned people being named after things within their research. I actually looked into this, and there was an American. There's an American scientist called Dr. Charles Gerber, who has named his son. Uh, he's given his son the middle name of Escher. Escherichia, I'm sorry, I'm dyslexic, I have real trouble reading my own handwriting, um, which is the E in E. coli. Oh my god. Yeah, so he's, got, he's actually... So met... it's actually out there. Yes, he's, he's got it, he's done it. I mean, I do know some historians who have named their children rather cruelly things like Anselm and Ethelred mm. um, and Ethelberger for a girl, which is just downright cruelty as far as I'm concerned but, uh, but yeah you do you do find medievalists um, blessing or rather cursing their children with some real clangers but um, <laughs> it's, it can be unkind but at least they're actual names so, yes. rather than instruments so. no. but yeah I really do I hate Abelard and Eloise I know they're supposed to be like the Romeo and Juliet of yeah. of real history but actually, I just, I'm just like, you called your kid after a sort of telescope, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> Who does that? You deserved everything you got. <laughs> I'm not keen on them, you can probably tell. Actually, with the, the whole naming thing, it, it just came to me that that was inherently funny. But, yes. Um, and actually, you know, in the past, things like... Things that seemed incredibly logical in the past. One of the hardest things I used to have to do with my students was, um, in particularly first-year history students, they come in and the first thing they do is say, this person was evil or this person was mm. good, and mostly they're evil because they did this. Mm. And then you have to sort of say, yes, but you have to dislocate yourself from modern sensibilities and modern mm. ideas of what's right and wrong and understand what was right and wrong in that mm. society. So they might have been considered a very good person mm. in that society for doing things that we would actually arrest them for and yeah. possibly execute them for in this in, 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 in yeah. modern society. So that's the hardest thing to actually get people's heads around yeah. is is to be aware of, of what why people did the craziest things and things you were just like Pardon, what? <laughs> How did you think that was a good idea? But of course they had these weird things. It's like Moses and his horns. 
somebody mistranslates the Bible at some point in the medieval period, and suddenly everywhere Moses is depicted with a little pair of horns poking out of his head. Really? And it was just a mistranslation. I mean, it, it just said Moses arrived wearing, I don't know what the actual thing was, but it, must, it might have been Moses arrived wearing a hat, and they mistranslated, <laughs> and it's like horns. And then for about two or three hundred years, Every painting that you see of Moses anywhere in any ecclesiastical place, he's got these cute little horns Aww. poking out of the top of his head. It's very sweet. Like sort of giraffe horns. <laughs> like yeah. Stubby ones. Oh. And while this is all happening, you know, scenes of destruction in the foyer of the medieval history department, I'm different to everyone else. Why am I different? Because in October that year, I got caught in a rain shower, really heavy rain, and my trainers got wet. I mean, seriously wet. And these were the days when students only had one pair of shoes. <laughs> so I needed those shoes dry for the next day. So I get to my room and I'm looking around for something absorbent. And my eye lights upon the medieval history course book. <laughs> and boy, was that absorbent. <laughs> so while everyone else knows what they're fighting for, I haven't got a Scooby. <laughs> Speaking of uh, leaving academia, as I mentioned, you are no longer a history teacher. You you now um, you now manage research. Uh, often, you end up asking people uh, at a certain point in an interview, "What next? What are you going to do next?" And I, I think that might be interesting in this case because it's not exactly like you can say, oh, "This is my next paper," or <laughs> "This is my next grant application." You know. It's, yeah, so next for me is actually just finding more ways to help people mm. at this university mm. um, pursue their research. So we work with postgraduate researchers, we work with postdoctoral researchers, we work with academic staff who want to get into research. Um, so we run programs to um, give them information that they need. We're also at the vanguard of, you know, running the ref so mm. there's that I work in my team we also have bids and contracts experts who, who work in that area so really what's next for me and for the team mm. is finding ways to just support other people to get on um, and, and do what they want to do with, with, their, with their research uh, whatever level that they're at um, so yeah it's, it's quite we, we're only I know it sounds like a long way away, Ref 2021 is, is, mm. is, you know, four years away, but actually, for me, it's scarily round the corner. <laughs> so I'm already, I'm already yeah. planning and panicking for that. <laughs> and suddenly, there's a gap in the scrimmage over medieval heresies. And I see one word, and that word is Viking. <laughs> and that one word led me to think four more words. And those words changed my life for the next 15 years. And those four words in my internal monologue were cool, big, hairy, barbarians. <laughs> the last thing I'll ask you is where sort of my personal interest in history comes from, and this is anecdotes. I do love stand-up comedy and I love history, just because of the anecdotes. <laughs> and I, I think I would like to ask you, uh, what is your favorite historical anecdote? Actually, this is a terrible thing, and I'm going to tell you this. Um, I was in a tutorial when I was, this is a personal anecdote, um, I was in a tutorial with um, a, a 
talking about an, an essay that I'd written mm. and um, explaining that I can't remember which Holy Roman Emperor it was but there was a Holy Roman Emperor and he died crossing a river and it was pertinent to my essay mm. so I just said he died crossing a river I want to say Frederick Barbarossa but I might be wrong and he died crossing a river and my lecturer said oh what how, how did he die and I don't know why I said this I really don't but I just said I mean I should have said I don't know <laughs> it's not in the records but instead I said supremely confidently oh he fell off his horse because he had a heart attack and about a month later, I was in a lecture with this lecturer, and he said, and Frederick Barbarossa died falling off his horse due to a heart attack. And I was just, I made that up. And he's saying it in a lecture. And as far as I know, generations of, of students of that lecturer now think that this guy died from a heart attack falling off a horse. I, I made that up. I feel both guilty and proud about that. <laughs> but this is the thing, history history does get so easily distorted and changed and it depends what you want out of history mm. as to so that's why history, even though you think it's a subject, you know, you've studied it, okay, now we know what happened, let's move on. That's why history s persists as a subject because everybody goes into it with their own questions, mm. their own interpretation, their own nuance. Mm. And then other people come back at it and they, to counter whatever the previous yeah. people said. And they're like, actually, I think you're looking at it wrongly or I'm looking at it through a different lens. Mm. So I, that's what I love about history is that you can go back again and again and again and again and you find new stuff and different stuff all the time. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm Speaking of death and horses, I, I heard that... I. I believe I read this in Horrible History, so take it with the, <laughs> with the relevant quantity of salt. Uh, but there was a, apparently a Scottish Viking who was killed by a dead man. Oh, this is a brilliant one. Oh, oh, I love this one. Yeah, okay. So there was this, I think it was Sigurd the Mighty. Mm. Um, so there was this Viking um, who uh, was killed by a dead man. Um, and he was the Earl of Orkney, um, or Jarl. Um, and so he was the Viking Earl of Orkney in, I think it was the 10th or 11th century, I can't quite remember when Sigurd was, was in charge. And he went into battle against this Scottish chieftain. And he was extremely successful. He was one of the most successful of the, of the Viking Earls, very well remembered. But he, he was so happy with his victory, he chopped the head off this Viking, sorry, this, this, this chieftain, and he attached it to his saddle and rode off in triumph but the thing about the guy whose head he chopped off was that he had protruding teeth Quite a and as he was riding along so he's riding on the horse it's like this you see bouncing up and down and the head's <laughs> bouncing up and down <laughs> next to him and it's banging against his thigh and the tooth is poking into his leg as he goes along. Now obviously he's still on an adrenaline high from the battle, so maybe he doesn't notice that there's this little tooth pecking at him. <laughs> so anyway, he died a few days later of blood poisoning because of the, 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 the tooth, um, the, the cut got infected. Um, I mean, mouths back in those days probably weren't that hygienic anyway, no. so it probably wasn't a clean tooth. Mm. Um, and yeah, he got blood poisoning and died shortly after the battle. So yeah, he was killed by a dead chieftain. <laughs> <laughs>
thank you very much, Nick, for um, speaking to me today. And that was fun. <laughs> I, I, good luck with the ref. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Hi again. Uh, thank you for listening all the way through. Um, I've just got a couple of comments quickly on uh, some of the stuff that Nick talked about. Um, uh, I didn't want to interrupt because she was just right about stuff. But um, but one uh, one thing that I found quite fun when I was looking up Frederick Barbarossa um, or uh, Frederick the First Holy Roman Emperor um, on Wikipedia to find out how he died according to Wikipedia. It does say some historians believe he may have had a heart attack that complicated matters, and, and then he drowned in a river, of course. But um, but yeah, so. I don't know whether either Nick was accidentally right about him having a heart attack, or her lie has spread such that it's now a Wikipedia fact. That's pretty cool. Um, Bright Club performers influencing the way history is taught. Excellent. Um, and uh, and then also, um, I looked up uh, that uh, Sigurd the Mighty, uh, the Earl of Orkney, um, and uh, and she was right about that. That's who it was that was uh, killed by the tooth of a dead Scottish chieftain, um, which is a pretty fun story. Um, and I just want to say that uh, I think um, human bites are still pretty nasty. So um, if you're ever riding on a horse with your enemy's head um, tied to your belt, uh, just just be careful, all right? Um, because we don't want you getting blood poisoning and dying. So um, yeah, that's just a health and safety message from us here at Bright Club. So um, thanks to Nick and Phil for uh, recording the fun podcast, um, and, uh, and in particular thanks Nick for uh, sorting us out a place to record at Silent University. Um, I always enjoy the stuff that we do down there. Uh, so as usual, I want to ask you to um, uh, like us on Facebook, um, follow us on Twitter, and uh, Send us an email. Um, our email address is brightclubsalton at gmail.com. Um, just search Bright Club Southampton around the place and you'll find us on Facebook and Twitter. And We've got a website. Um, so yeah, get in touch with us though and uh, let us know if you want to perform or if you have any comments on the podcast. Uh, I've done 10 episodes now but, um, but uh, and I'm kind of finding my feet I guess but there's always ways I can improve and I would love to hear your suggestions. Also this week though, I want to plug uh, The Science Room. That's something that I fairly regularly plug because our episodes always come out just a few days before they have another event. Uh, but this time in particular actually, it's kind of being run as a um, joint Bright Club and Science Room thing, um, with me leading the discussion. Uh, so The Science Room is generally, if you're not familiar with it, uh, they take um, questions from the community and, uh, and then they find the right person to answer those questions. Um, and now if I don't know, I find the right person, but they have a question which is, how does funny work? And I volunteered to have a go at answering. Um, so I'm not quite doing it as like a Bright Club training workshop, but um, a little bit like that. Um, but also just uh, maybe having a bit of a chat about why things are funny and why we laugh. Um, and uh, how jokes are made and how they work. So um, that's on this Saturday, if you're listening to this uh, in the week that it comes out. That is um, Saturday the 15th, uh, and that happens at the Art House in Southampton. So uh, hopefully see some of you there. That's all I've got to say, I think. So I will uh, love you and leave you 
and um, I, uh, I'm missing you already. Bye.